Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Radio Show, number 19, recorded 3rd of January, 2011. This interview is with Kathleen Dillon Carroll, founder and president of the Branding Clinic based in New Jersey. Kathleen has a blue-chip, top-caliber marketing background, having worked at P&G, Heinz, and CNBC. In 2000, Kathleen founded the Branding Clinic to help major brands, naming some of them like J&J, Amex, Abbott Labs, and Bath & Body Works, to find consumer insights and help spur their growth. I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing about the important challenges facing these brands, as well as some of the interesting new insights that Kathleen has. Enjoy the show. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Minta Dialogue radio show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minta Dial, and I'm author of the blog, themindset.com. That's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. So let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Well, hello. This is Minter Dial of the Minter Dialogue radio show, and I'm very happy to be performing a oh-so-techy Skype interview with Kathleen Dillon Carroll, who's president of the Branding Clinic. Now, Kathleen and I met, as so many of us now do, on in a virtual way, but there are many things that link us, and uh, one of the wonderful things that links us apart from family, is uh, the branding uh, interest, the interest in branding. So, Kathleen, you are president of the Branding Clinic. Can you explain to us um, what you do at the Branding Clinic? Um, sure, Mentor. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, basically, we help Fortune 500 companies and smaller figure out ways to unearth consumer insights that help drive their brands to double-digit growth. We do this in a number of ways, predominantly brand positioning and repositioning, also new product development and innovation. And one other area that we focus on is helping European companies enter into the U.S. Hmm. So how do you go about unearthing insights? Because this is clearly uh, the the central nervous system of branding. Yeah, it is. I find I do it through looking all around life and really being an observer and trying to find out what is making people tick. So it can be anything from following cartoonists, which I often do to see what's, you know, hitting the tickle bone, walking the streets, uh, going to, you know, Soho to artist communities. Um, Recently for a fragrance project, we had to come up with sort of naming and we use stimulation as much as, you know, paint decks and what are paint call to nail polishes to how was naming constructs and wine and bringing that over and thinking of fresh ways that we could do that in fragrance and uh, you so you so you, you help a european companies uh come to america uh, of course this is uh, this speaks to me in volumes being a an american based over here and and having worked on both sides of the atlantic so what sort of uh how do you start with that and what are, what are the biggest challenges that they face when they come over to you to the US? I think the biggest challenge is you have your own marketplace perception and that you come with uh, what your brand history was in Europe and how it developed and what has made it successful. And then you're looking here at the US market and the predisposition will be what made it successful in the home country is what will make it successful in, you know, America. And really trying to understand where the American consumer is, as well as where the marketplace is and the life stage development of that product. And really understanding that 
spot and trying to be able to develop a common language and dialogue to help the founding European uh, managers see where their product fits now into the American sort of culture and where the consumer trends and needs are, because it's always at a different spot. But you really have to develop that common understanding and almost a language mm-hmm. so that they can buy into what is a significant you know, investment. Often the U.S. market is you know, s- several times larger than uh, what they've been experiencing in you know, Europe. So it's really finding that common language and where the consumer insights often do overlap. I think most of the insights are global and in nature, but really finding that one that is going to give them the unique vantage point to enter into the U.S. with the greatest probability for success. If I go back to my uh, old days with L'Oreal and yeah. working in the States, we would often say Chicago is the great middle ground. I mean, I suppose that's still true. When 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 they're coming from Europe, the fact that New York and New Jersey, where you are, is sort of uh, a nicer stepping stone, the fact that you speak French, of course, must help. And um, How do you approach uh, geographically? Because there's this... No, I mean, obviously, the United States represents an enormous market, uh, and it's very different from coast to coast, albeit they think of America sometimes as one country. How do you uh, – what, what are the sort of stepping stones you, you give them or advice you give them? Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, and what we try to jump off uh, first is just a sound marketplace understanding and just really understanding sort of you know, a cross-check of the marketplace and the consumer and the size and understanding the competitive players and just really having that as a backdrop. Mm -hmm. Then what we want to do is some core ethnographic research in two to three markets. You know, one would definitely be a coastal market, whether it was West Coast or East Coast, a little more cosmopolitan. But then we do want to do a dipstick, you know, check into the Midwest, whether it's, you know, Chicago market or Dallas or Denver Cleveland, you know, will want to get in and test there and understand really how the consumer insights are playing. Now, to step back, I will say, though, we tend to find just in our global work as well as our U.S. work and stuff, I mean, core consumer needs are, you know, the same and not so much driven by uh, geography, but we do like to get a initial check on it and we'll do that with the ethnographic research hmm. all right so one of the things you guys do at the branding clinic is uh, the product called the you promise can you talk to us about that um sure and this actually was before i formed uh the branding clinic and it was a challenge put down by citibank and i was working for a consulting firm at the time and the challenge was basically could you make us a card that's a credit card that's more profitable than their current American Airlines card and their Ford card, which had been the two most profitable credit cards. And these are credit cards that give rewards, you know, Mm -hmm. some miles or money towards a car. And so they gave us a specific target market that they wanted uh, us to work with. And they were called the parent trap segment. And so these are ones who their spending needs outstrip their income. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was really mad. I, my whole life, you know, from Procter and Heinz and stuff, I had worked on products that, you know, I really believed in. They had a point of difference. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be raping people of their money who can right. least afford it. Mm-hmm. 
but it's from those struggles mm-hmm. that you find like the best insights, I mm-hmm. think. So taking a shower where I get most of my ideas, I was like, <laughs> what's their pain? And mm-hmm. their pain, I figured, was what they weren't doing. And here they are, the parent trap is that they weren't saving as much for their kids' education. And so it was one idea of like a hundred ideas that we put into research to understand. And indeed it did prevail. And so then that led to a whole program that had the credit card, but also some other manufacturers coming in and finding ways where parents could accrue dollars into education accounts for their children. It also took an act of Congress to create this 529 plan to allow uh, people to save their money. So um, this was an idea uh, before its time. It took about seven years before it could hit the marketplace. And just to, just to cut in, it, the, um, in California, they've, there's a survey that just came out that said that they're actually prepared for the first time, or they might be prepared because it's only in the poll stage, to vote for a tax increase if the tax increase only went to education. So you've obviously hit a nerve in that. Well, you obviously had, but as you say, seven years ago, hit a nerve. Yes. Right. So the, the, you, you promise program that you used with Citibank. How, can you use that with other uh, brands that come to work, you know, asking uh, for your help? Oh, yeah. In terms of like finding the core insights and understanding what happens and stuff, um, you know, we had a paint brand uh, that we were working with. And, you know, what we usually try to do is find that intersection of the emotional with the rational sort of benefit because we tend to find the emotional drives growth the fastest. And so what we found was where you feel the best about you know, renovating or doing anything in your house is when it uh, is first done, that first look. And so what if you could come up with a promise about keeping the fresh painted look longer and, you know, extending that emotional uh, high? And so mm-hmm. we were able to bring that into this category in the home decorating space. So it's looking for the emotional thing. Now, so if you're faced with them, um... Uh, a European, let's call it, you got you, you and I know, um, uh, engineering mentality, highly rational CEO kind of mindset. Uh, how, how do you get that to be won over? I mean, uh, or, you know, how do you sell that, an, an emotional claim versus a rational claim to a, a very right, you know, left brain kind of mentality? That's a great question and a wonderful challenge. So Mm -hmm. we've got to make sure we get the functional benefit right first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you've got to make sure. Then they'll start listening to you. They'll keep on listening. Yeah, exactly, and get that. But I think there's a general premise, I mean, particularly in this marketing world where we see things like, you know, Coca-Colas and sodas and fragrances and things that are living on, you know, emotional promises only, uh, and their selves, and that they people define a great brand loyalty like to them. I mean, I think there's a generally held premise that you know the emotion drives loyalty greater than functional benefits. So mm-hmm. I mean, we'll try and do a little background education or reminding if you know that's not already there. And then it really sort of comes to life. I mean, you really want them to attend some of the consumer research or make sure you've uh, videotaped it enough to really see how these uh, consumers can come to life if you hit sort of these emotional touch points Mm -hmm. uh, with them and how that makes them see certain brands, you know, differently. I mean, you can hear it and how they speak, how they sit, you know, the energy of their, you know, posture. Well, just, uh, I mean, looking at, at uh, I mean, amongst your clients, you have pharmaceutical brands. 
and there's a whole lot of re regulatory uh, areas around that, making it a little bit more complicated. But do you can you have any? Have you had a chance or any luck getting a more emotional claims into the in the pharma space, for example? Um, interestingly, yes. Now, in a doctor to doctor, um, you know, business to doctor advertising sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they have a choice of medications. So we had one project where we're uh, communicating to both neuroscientists and psychiatrists. So two very different audiences. But the challenge was could we get one ad campaign that would work toward them for this one, you know, drug? Mm -hmm. Because there's huge savings on the back end, right, if you can just do one print ad, one TV campaign, sure. et cetera. And what we found was a commonality of emotion that they shared, and it was about getting it right and, you know, doing what was right by the patient care but by themselves, too, so, like, they wouldn't be making a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so we played on this drug that happened to be from, you know, the 1950s that really did have a very strong and safe uh, efficacy, strong efficacy profile and a safety, you know, profile. So sort of like, like they couldn't get it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, Feeling uh, to that, you know, emotional side of them, mm -hmm. uh, and it worked very well. Hmm. Interesting. So, right, 2011 uh, hardly be called an easy year. You've you worked with a bunch of brands. Do you have any particular insight that seemed or most was most interesting of all the ones you, you worked with that you'd like to share with us? Oh boy! <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, that's that is a real uh, on the spot. Um, or I put it put it another way, you know. Uh, everyone's talking about deal, 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 looking for the price, and uh, there's this need for uh, you know. Some people are saying, "Well, I need to return to sense and and my values." Uh, when you've worked with any of the brands, have you seen anything else that's come out that that says, "Hmm, this could be a growth there opportunity for the years coming"? Well, I mean, one area I do see is a growth area, I mean, it gets to like, you know, everyone's hurting now and the economics are hurting and they sort of, you know, want happy times or things that they believe in and stuff. So one of the things in terms of developing your brand promise um, that we have said to companies or their positioning is that they also have to align themselves and decide what um, charity they're going to sponsor and that's going to be part of their brand ethos uh, that they're going to take, you know, a stand on. So I think you consumers are looking for the social cause. Mm -hmm. So that's one um, growing area that, you know, in the past we really, you know, weren't, you know, who cares what, yeah. what you're doing. It's, you know, a different part. But now we're seeing it really coming into the core uh, positioning of the brand. And people are looking for different factors to make choices on. So I, I was going to come back to something you, you mentioned earlier, which was, um, you know, do you believe in the product you're selling? Do you ever get a chance to work internally how the belief in the product is felt by the employees or do you stick uh, exclusively with the relationship with the client outside the customer? Um, most of the time with the latter, but we did have a great opportunity with uh, Tyson Foods as they purchased international beef and pork um, to help them with their internal 
employees and how they felt about the company with the whole goal of trying to increase shareholder value and be seen less as a commodity firm and more as a value added to get a higher you know multiple in the stock market mm. and so there was a whole brand repositioning about the power of protein mm-hmm. and a whole ad campaign and things that went with that but then there was also this work i did in conjunction with uh, faith popcorn oh yeah her firm brain reserve in, in new york so i came in and worked with her on this and we um, went and did a whole employee initiative too one of which you know culminated and we stopped the whole company for a minute to you know get the message and how important you know this was and how everyone really needed to think about their company differently that mm-hmm. it's the power of protein it's not just beef chicken pork um and a commodity well faith popcorn's a name how was it like working with her oh she's a trip mm-hmm. she is a trip i admire what she you know did really the first one to come sort of out there in a very male advertising you know world mm-hmm. and to figure out some trends and some core trends and track them. And, mm. you know, she's still going strong. I just talked to her right before Christmas. Mm, and- beautiful. So, um, all right, so let's talk about brand marketers and the the, the challenges they are facing today in building brands. If you had a CEO in front of you or a bunch of brand marketers, what would be some of the insights you say to them? All right, first off, if you want to create a successful brand, here's what, here's what are the key uh, key factors. Yeah, first and foremost, I just see way too much complication going on. And so my first thing is really make sure you're simplifying things down to what its essence is. And that takes time and that takes energy to do. But once you get it, maintaining it is easy. And uh, you really need to stay on top of what the consumer insights are. I mean, everyone in the workplace today is running from meeting to meeting to meeting, and they're not really having that core thinking time. So they often outsource it to people like me, which is great, but I would say to a CEO, stop and give your people time to really work and invest, you know, in uh, insights uh, work, you know, internally. Beautiful. Do um, Do you have any other ones you'd like to share? Well, you know, coming from Proctor, we used to have this thing, search and reapply, you know, look, learn, and, you know, apply it to your own business. And I still think that uh, applies today because every brand in different categories are at different stages. And I think if you stay active and looking beyond your own industry and seeing others, you will find ideas for yours for when it's right Mm. and, you know, stay on top of uh, things. I think there's way too much uh, insularness Mm. that goes on. I hear you. My goodness. The number of times, you know, you can go to a place and um, and oh, just to, oh, just to recently, I was talking with somebody, and and I was saying, well, "Have you seen the new evolutions of Google Analytics?" He said, "No, no, we use another system. We have a proprietary system." I said, "Whoa, well, maybe you ought to know what's going on in Google Analytics because that may help you evolve your own proprietary system." And um, the same could be said for a lot of other brands that I've worked with. And you know, well, our product's great. Okay, and the other products are pretty good as well. So, you know, how, how can we be different and think differently? So, um, yeah. what I agree a- with you. You know, one thing just to add to what you're saying, and it sort of fits with the message of simplicity. One of the challenges I really see is the brand architectures just getting way out of hand. Um, and 
companies not being able to see the need for a core brand line, sort of line advertising, line positioning, and what it is that you stand at. And they're sort of grabbing at the next big thing. And then they make themselves be addicted to this, you know, new products, news, needle. Mm-hmm. And there's just diminishing returns behind that. So one of the things we try to work with our clients on is really getting back to the basics, finding that line, advertising, uh, core positioning that they can own and sort of get them at a better value return on their investment. Mm. Well, I mean, there you got the, you know, the whole idea of organic growth as opposed to acquisition. And acquisition for me uh, the way I've always seen it is is new product as well as of course new territories and new sectors, mm-hmm. and and you know if you don't know how to grow the products you have, well then really well then you, you know you're causing you can cause future degradation because you're just you know slowing or you're postponing the the death because you you don't know how to grow what you have you you buy new things you launch new things but you can't grow them any better because you haven't figured out how to to mine them and. And be more careful about which ones you do uh, resort or invest behind. Right, but it looks great on a financial sheet. You know, it's the the hidden problem. Uh, The 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 quest for the new. I really like that. Um, And what about you know when you're when you're working on insights? To what extent has the internet or what role does it have in your play? And or you know maybe where has internet changed the way you go about helping brands? Um, the internet is phenomenal for insights. Uh, and I spend time through Facebook, actually, I and through LinkedIn, through looking at a sites like Esty and to see what they're selling from craft purveyors mm-hmm. and things. It gives me instant, fast access to, like, what the conversations are, what's happening. Um, You know, if I need to know about a company, it's great to go and see, you know, what um, is being said about them. So, to me, the Internet has has provided greater speed and a greater quantity to what I can find out uh, in an instant. Are there any any particular tools you use, or is it I mean, as you're saying, just go into Facebook hit, or go into a LinkedIn forum. Do you have any, uh, what, what are your favorite ways of listening? So let's say, you know, you have a client that wants to work on product X. Uh, do you have uh, methods of going in and listening about product X? Not particularly a codified way, no. Yeah, it's just sort of more organic and you find stuff and you, or you might, of course, it depends on what the, product is or if it's a company you want to go and see the company i so um when when you're uh let's say in the branding world who are your the go-to uh, references for you who do you love reading listening to and the uh, sites you visit on on branding well i probably my two my conversations with two men actually whereas most all my other stuff i tend to do with women but uh kevin lane keller up at dartmouth uh, and then Eric Jakumthaler over at Vivaldi Partners. I've had the chance to work with both of them. And I actually do also go back to Cornell to my old professor, Vitalo Rao, uh, when it has to do with, like, marketing, spending, quant sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. That's not my strength, but if I need to know stuff. But if we're really thinking about uh, branding and the future and how things are going to be, uh, I tend to, you know, talk to those guys. So those are those are just uh, one-to-one conversations, and because you have access to them, 
That's cool. Do you have any other um, guys that other people could uh, read about or, you know, go and, you know, um, check up? Well, I love Paco Underhill, about, you know, anything that's about psychology and like how you're going to buy. And then I just read a book recently. I can't remember the author, Biology, B-Y. Oh, yeah. yeah, I read I read that too. And I can't remember right now, but uh, a yellow book, right? Biology. Yeah. Got it. I, I like that one actually too. Um, well, I'll put that in the show notes in any event. That, uh, thank you for that. And um, and Kathleen, um, as oh yeah, I was just going to say Cornell. Um, didn't Cornell just win with Bloomberg the thing on um, Roosevelt Island? Yes. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. I've. Um... I'm on the President's Council of Cornell Women, and oh. it's a huge alumni effort, you know, behind this. And just sheer genius. And Chuck Feeney, who ended up giving the, you know, I think what tipped the boat on the financial is the uh, sorority sisters of mine dad. And I'm just, like, so thrilled. Right. And it would be great for entrepreneurs like myself and, you know, the whole community in New York is going to benefit. I hope I'm a part of the extended family. I went to Colgate. Which isn't Cornell, but it's not far. It is in New York. But anyway, that, I don't think that that'll win me any flowers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be it's going to be great. You know, Technion, everyone. I mean, it's going to benefit. I mean, I think it was the most comprehensive and bold plan. I think is the word that they you know use. So I'm you know excited. It's getting started up in September, and uh, I'm hoping to help and participate in whatever you know way possible. Beautiful. All right. So question for you. Kathleen, how can someone who's listening to this uh, get in touch with you, follow you, track you down? Best way. Well, they can email me directly at Kathleen at thebrandingclinic.com. And they're more than welcome to call me at uh, 201-970-8066. I'll put that in the show notes. And, of course, your website, which is? Uh, www.thebrandingclinic.com. Kathleen, Dylan Carroll, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on board on the show. Uh, look forward to staying, staying in touch with you, following you closely, and uh, maybe next time see you in New York. Terrific, Mentor. Hope so, too. Thanks a lot, and Happy New Year. No, happy New Year. Bye-bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue radio show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. If you like the show, please don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or tweet it out. And if you speak French, you can find my other French language interviews on minterdial.fr. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, 
personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.